Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church Podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join Pastor Neil Effa in the middle of his series titled, The Transformed Life. In part 14, Discerning God's Will for Fruitful Service, he examines Romans chapter 15, verses 22 to 33. Recently, I read that what we let into our minds shapes the state of our souls. And the Apostle Paul would certainly be in agreement with that statement. In fact, this is how he framed that truth in his epistle to the Romans. In in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he wrote, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are in a series from Romans chapters 12 to 16, which I've entitled The Transformed Life. And in these chapters, Paul begins by giving to us the impetus, the motivation for living this kind of life. He appeals to us on the basis of God's mercies. In the first 11 chapters, he carefully and thoroughly explained the mercies God has lavished upon us through his son. God in his love has redeemed us. He has justified us. He has adopted us into his family. He forgave us, predestined us, sanctified us. He's made us righteous. And then he goes on to say, in light of that, we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. We are to yield ourselves to God so that he can begin and continue the process of transformation in our lives. God loves us just the way we are, but he is not content to keep us the way we are. He wants to transform our thoughts, our behaviors, our habits, our attitudes, so they reflect the likeness of his son, Jesus. What follows the first two verses of Romans 12 is a description of the transformed life. And over the past several months, we have been studying in detail the characteristics of a life that is being shaped, that is being formed by God. Last week, we discovered and discussed that the Apostle Paul was a man who enjoyed a fruitful ministry, a ministry that included the encouragement of God's people, speaking the truth of God's word, depending upon the power of God's spirit and committing himself to God's call on his life. In other words, a transformed life is a fruitful life. And just as God has used Paul in a mighty and powerful way, he also desires to use you and me in a mighty and powerful way. But have you ever wondered how Paul knew what he was supposed to do and where he was supposed to go? What guided his decisions? How did he determine God's will for his life? Romans chapter 15 verses 22 to 33 offers a fascinating glimpse into the mind of the apostle Paul and provides for us priorities Paul used in determining God's will. And so with that, I ask you to turn in your Bibles to this passage, Romans 15, 22 to 33. I'm going to read the passage in its entirety so that we can get a sense of what Paul is saying. And then we're going to go back and we're going to study it in more detail. And so Paul writes, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. 
for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered them to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. In this passage, Paul offers a more detailed explanation of his current travel plans. In one sense, this paragraph may not seem important to us because it simply records one man's personal itinerary from 2,000 years ago. But these verses provide a useful glimpse into the thinking of the Apostle Paul, and as such, they help us understand why he did what he did and why he went where he went. And that alone is a valuable lesson. It speaks to a need that all of us have in our life for guidance and direction for making decisions. We all struggle to find and do God's will. And often we wonder what God would have us do. Ray Pritchard writes, I have often framed this question this way. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have lunch with Jesus? Suppose the Lord himself granted you 45 minutes in which you and he could have lunch together and you could ask any question you wanted. Surely somewhere along the way, you would say something like this, Lord Jesus, am I doing what you want me to do? Because if I'm not, or if there is something else you want me to do, please let me know. Well, the only problem is that we can't have lunch with Jesus, not in the literal sense. That sort of face-to-face exchange will have to wait until we are in heaven. Between now and then, we will need to discern God's direction and his will for our lives as we seek to serve him. And so this brings us back to the passage I read earlier where Paul reveals to us the priorities by which he lived. The priorities that determine the direction and scope of his ministry. Here we discover that Paul's decisions were based on well-ordered priorities. The first thing that we discover is that Paul based his decisions around God's call on his life. And he continually remained true to his calling. Therefore, if you and I are going to know and do God's will, we must remain true to the call that God has placed upon our personal lives. And so we need to be guided by God's calling. Let's go back to the text. Verse 22, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. As we discovered last Sunday, Paul had a firm commitment to pioneer missions. Paul's calling was unique. He had been appointed to take the gospel to places where no one else had taken it in order to reach the known world as quickly as possible. And he had stated previously in verses 20 and 21 that he did not want to build on someone else's foundation because there were always new areas where the gospel had never been taken. 
Therefore, when he says in verse 22 that he had been hindered from visiting these Roman believers, he was simply saying that the gospel had already been preached in Rome and the church had already been established in Rome. So getting to Rome was not one of his top priorities. They didn't need him there like some of the other parts of the world did. In other words, true to his calling, he had focused his efforts on preaching to people who had not heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he had delayed his trip to Rome so that he could take the gospel to Jerusalem, north through Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, across the Aegean Sea to Greece, and then through the region of Illyricum, which is modern-day Albania, northward along the Balkan Peninsula. But then in verse 22, he says he no longer has any room for work in these regions. And what does he mean by that? Does he mean that everyone in these regions had heard the gospel? Of course, Paul doesn't mean that he had saturated the whole area with the gospel. Rather, his strategy was to evangelize the populous and influential cities and plant churches in those cities and then leave to others the spread of the gospel to the surrounding villages. And in Paul's mind, he had done just that. Therefore, he was now ready to make a visit to Rome. However, did you catch what his ultimate goal was even as he was trying to make that trip to Rome? His ultimate goal was to preach the gospel in Spain at the western edge of the Mediterranean Sea. For Paul, that would be going to the uttermost parts of the earth. So Rome was not his final destination. Paul had his eye on Spain, a country that did not have a gospel witness. Paul was always thinking ahead. He was always making tentative plans, plans to do the one thing he loved best and the one thing that God had called him to do. He was to preach the gospel and to go to places no one had gone before. And he had some plans for the Roman Christians as well. He said that he would need their help for his trip to Spain. And that word help had come to be used of helping missionaries during his day in their journeys. It meant more than just good wishes and a farewell prayer. In most cases, it also involved supplying the missionaries with provisions, with, with money, with food, sometimes providing them an escort uh, to the area where they were going, or at least part of the way of their journey. So Paul was hoping to visit the Roman Christians, not only to encourage them, but also hoping they would help him in his journey to Spain by providing food and money, companions, and some means of travel. And by helping him, his ministry would truly be a team effort. So even his planned trip to Rome was intended for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those regions that did not have a gospel witness. And in so doing, he would remain true to his calling. But not only did he remain true to his calling, he was also guided by a desire for church unity. And we read of that in verses 25 to 29. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it. And indeed they owe it to them for the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings. They ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. There was one thing that Paul wanted to do before he traveled to Rome. He 
first felt compelled to make a visit to Jerusalem. Now stop and consider this. If Paul had gone directly from Greece to Spain with a layover layover in Rome, the trip would have been approximately 1500 miles. Greece to Rome is approximately 650 miles and Rome to Spain is approximately 850 miles. But first he planned to go east. He intended to go from Corinth to Jerusalem, which is around 800 miles. Then from Jerusalem to Rome, which is approximately another 1400 miles. And then from Rome to Spain, which is another 850 miles. And so doing, he would travel around 3050 miles. Now, in the first century, that meant a long, difficult journey by boat as well as on foot. Now, why would he travel 3,050 miles instead of 1,500 miles? Well, the answer is that he had an offering to deliver to the Christians in Jerusalem, an offering that had been collected from Gentile Christians to alleviate the suffering of Jewish Christians. But doesn't that raise another question? Now that this offering had been taken up, Why doesn't he send the money on to Jerusalem with other trusted representatives so that he could go about his business of going on to Rome and then to Spain? I think the answer is that Paul wanted the impoverished Christians in Jerusalem to know that as an apostle to the Gentiles, he cared deeply about the Jewish brothers and sisters. The church in Jerusalem was desperately poor. Famine had taken its toll on people. And besides that, the Jewish religious leaders were doing everything in their power to oppress the Christians, even denying them employment whenever they could. And so Paul appealed to the Gentile Christians in the regions of Macedonia and Achaia to take up a collection for their fellow believers. And we read about this collection Elsewhere in the New Testament, in Philippians and, and 2 Corinthians, and in Acts chapter 24, verse 17, we find Paul's testimony to Felix that he came to Jerusalem in order to bring alms to his fellow Jewish Christians. However, it must be noted that Paul did not regard this offering as simply a way to meet the physical needs of the Jerusalem church. In addition to serving that important purpose, the collection theologically signified a demonstration of the unity of Jews and Gentiles in Christ. You see, by contributing to the needs of the believers in Jerusalem, the Gentile Christians demonstrated their love and their oneness with Jewish Christians. The apostle is clear that the Gentiles in Macedonia and Achaia, which is modern day Greece, gave willingly and did not need to be compelled. And Paul saw their giving also as a fulfillment of an obligation that they had to the Jews. The Gentile Christians had come to share in the blessings of the Jewish Christians. Salvation is of the Jews, we read in scripture. For that nation was entrusted with the oracles of God. And the Savior himself was Jewish. And because the Gentiles had received the spiritual blessings of salvation through the Jewish Messiah, they had a debt of gratitude to pay to the Jewish church. And so in the form of contributing to their material needs out of thankfulness for what the Jews had given them. That word contribution used in verse 26 is a Greek word koinonia, which is often translated fellowship or partnership. Paul is calling the offering that had been collected for these Jewish believers as a partnership. We know that tension existed in the early church between Jewish and Gentile believers. But Paul believed that if the Gentiles contributed to the physical needs of the Jews in Jerusalem, 
That would do wonders in cementing the unity and the oneness of the church. I mean, after all, don't we feel a sense of kinship and partnership with someone who helps us out or with someone we are able to help? And Paul wanted to re reinforce that unity. He wanted to foster that fellowship. He personally wanted to tear down the walls that existed between Jew and Gentile. As Gentile Christians, we owe a great deal to the old covenant community and the Jewish people. God chose them as the first recipients of a special re revelation. He saves the world through a Messiah who is of Jewish ethnicity. Jewish apostles wrote the vast majority of the New Testament and they preached the gospel to the Gentiles. We can't forget our debt as well. And so we need to seek to repay it by supporting Christian ministry to the Jewish people. But let's also strive to bring together the different groups within our church fellowship, the young and the old, the traditional and the contemporary, the rich, the poor, those of other nationalities or social standing or theological persuasions. This is a point that Paul makes in these verses. The rich help the work, the, the rich help the poor, the strong support the weak. And in this way, the church is made stronger and more united as Christians from different ethnic and economic backgrounds support one another. And so his ministry was guided by his call. It was guided by his desire for the unity of the church. But Paul also discerned God's will through the prayers of God's people. Let's return to our text. Verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God in my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Everything of eternal value that we are ever privileged to accomplish is accomplished by God's power working through us in answer to prayer. Our own or somebody else's or both. And that is why Paul pleads with the Romans to pray for him. With his ministry in the East now completed, the opportunity to go to Rome presented itself at the time Paul was corresponding with these Roman believers. But the apostle knew that he would make it only if God continued to open the doors and route. And so he asked the Romans to pray with him to that end. I would have you notice the appeal, of Paul, uh, that, the appeal that Paul makes for prayer. First, his appeal is by our Lord Jesus Christ. That is in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we are to pray in Jesus' name. We're to pray in and by his authority. But his appeal is also by the love of the spirit, which likely means something like out of the love that the Holy Spirit has poured out into our hearts for one another. The apostle Paul grounds his request in the love believers have for each other. And this is a firm grounding indeed for those whom we love or those for whom we will most diligently pray. So out of mutual love, Paul calls them to strive with him in praying to God. That word strive translates a Greek term that, that means exertion or strenuous effort. Paul is saying, put effort into your prayer for me. Identify with me. Paul asked the Roman believers to fully identify with his travails, his sufferings, his needs as they prayed for him. 
John Kelvin put it this way. The godly ought to pray for their brethren, that they are to assume their person as though they were placed in the same difficulties. Paul's request is quite specific. First, he wanted them to pray for his deliverance from the unbelievers in Judea. Remember, he's going to Jerusalem first to present that gift. Paul was not in Judea when he wrote the epistle, but he knew that from the prophet Agabus, that the Jewish authorities would arrest him, would hand him over to the Roman authorities. And so Paul wanted his readers to pray that his handing over would be a deliverance to Rome so that he could preach the gospel there as well. He also asked the Romans to pray that his service would be acceptable to the saints in Jerusalem. Apparently, Paul thought it at least possible that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem would not receive the monetary assistance from the Gentiles. And there was good reason for Paul to be concerned about this matter. For as I said before, the Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians struggled with getting along in the early church. And many of the Jewish Christians resented him for not insisting that his Gentile converts follow the whole Jewish law. Some of them even considered him a traitor to his nation for directing his primary ministry to Gentiles. But Paul also asked the Romans to pray that he would be able to visit them. That with the first two prayers answered, he might head for Rome in the will of God, filled with joy, where he hoped to find spiritual refreshment and fellowship with the Roman Christians in preparation for his evangelistic thrust into Spain. Now, I have a question for you. Did God answer all of those requests? It would seem like he didn't, at least not in the way that Paul expected them to be answered. Well, the second request was answered. The Jewish Christians did accept that gift that he brought. His actions, however, were misrepresented by unbelievers in Jerusalem, and they instigated a riot in which he was dragged from the temple area and he was beaten. Now, you could say that he was hardly delivered from the unbelievers, and yet he was, because a Roman guard in Jerusalem saw his plight and rescued him from those who wanted to kill him. How about request number three, that he visit Rome? Well, if you read through the book of Acts, you know the rest of the story. First, Paul was imprisoned in Jerusalem after he was rescued from the mob. And he was held in the Roman army barracks in Jerusalem. Then he was moved from there because there was a plot to kill him. He was moved from there to a prison in the regional capital of Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast where he remained for two years. While he was in Caesarea, he appealed to Caesar for Caesar to hear his, his court trial. And after appealing to Caesar, he was put on a ship for Italy. He was, during that trip, he was shipwrecked on the island of Malta and then finally did arrive in Rome in chains where he remained for at least two year, more years under house arrest. Whether or not he made it to Spain, we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But Paul's prayers were answered, but not in the way he expected. Many of you know the name of Jim Elliott one of the five missionaries martyred by the Aka Indians of Ecuador in 1956. Just three years before his death, after watching an Indian die in a jungle hut, he had affirmed his willingness to serve God and to die among those people if necessary, praying, Lord, let me live 
until I have declared your works to this generation. I'm sure Jim Elliot didn't expect God to answer his prayer by letting him be speared to death before he was 30 years old. But neither did he have any idea that within three years of his death, his name would be known all over the world and that his journals would challenge thousands to give themselves to the Lord's service. He's still speaking today, though he's been in heaven for over 60 years. That wasn't how he expected his prayer to be answered. But it truly was a great answer. As we seek to determine God's direction for our lives, invite others to strive in prayer for you. And strive in prayer for others. You see, it's easy to strive in prayer for ourselves, for we feel our sufferings, we have an experiential understanding of the urgency of our needs. We find it much harder to strive in prayer for others because we don't have that experiential connection with them. We're not in their shoes. And that is why we should work hard to empathize with others in their needs. For as we get a stronger sense of what is necessary for them, we're better able to pray for others with all perseverance. As I bring things to a close this morning, I want to ask a number of questions once again, questions of application, questions for you to reflect on and think about today and in the, in the days that follow regarding the priorities that direct your life. My first question is, what has God gifted and equipped you to do? We notice that Paul was true to his calling. Are you being true to your unique calling? Perhaps you struggle with knowing how God has gifted you and, and how he has equipped you. Rick Warren reminds us that God shapes us for ministry. And using the word shape as an acronym, he challenges us to find and fulfill our unique purpose for life. S, he, he says, unwrap your spiritual gifts. When you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you're given at least one spiritual gift. Some were given more. Do you know what it is? And the only way to discover your spiritual gift is to get involved and try different things and find those things that excite you and where you, can be, um, where you find fruitfulness and effectiveness. Unwrap your spiritual gift. He says, hear your heartbeat. What kind of things make your heart beat emotionally? What passions do you have? When you watch the news, what, what stirs within your heart? When you watch the plight of children who are starving, does that move you? When you hear about seniors who are being abused, does that do something for you? Perhaps that is a way in which God is directing you into a particular ministry. Hear your heartbeat. Discover your natural abilities. Ask yourself, what do I naturally do better than others? The abilities that you have are a strong indication of what God wants you to do with your life. And all of us were born with natural abilities, things that we just excel at naturally. We really don't have to work at them in any way. Recognize your personality. What is your temperament? How do you relate to those around you? How has God wired you to navigate life? You see, our temperament, our personality, also sort of challenges us and, and channels us into an area of ministry. And then understand your experiences. Ask, where have I been? What have I learned? 
what events have shaped me? What experience can, experiences have I gone through that I can use to minister to others? When you stop and think of some of the help ministries that are out there today, many of them come, have begun by individuals who went through that very particular experience. Drug rehabilitation. Someone who was able to free themselves through the power of God from drugs or substance or something else understanding, now wanting to share what they have experienced with others. And so they start a help ministry. You have gone through joys and sorrows, heartaches and disappointments that you can use to minister to other people. And so when you begin to put these things together, it begins to give a direction for ministry, helping you to understand what your unique call is in life and how God can use you in that way. Another question I pose for you is, how can you use your service to foster the unity of the church? Our service is to bring people together. As we minister, we are to bring one another together into community. We're community. And in community, you need unity. And so, as we serve, it needs to foster that unity. And finally, who have you recruited to pray for you as you seek to fulfill God's call on your life? You know where God wants you to serve, but have you rallied people around you and say, would you please pray for me and be very specific in regards to the prayers you would desire from these individuals? Not only reflect upon these questions, but act upon them as well. Ask God to direct you so that you would experience fruitfulness in ministry as you prioritize around your unique calling going to ask you to bow as I pray. Father, we thank you for this passage, which is just more than one man's itinerary. It's a reflection of his heart and his mindset and his desire. And so, Father, as we evaluate our priorities, those things that dictate our, the direction of our life, those things that guide our decisions, I pray that they would reflect the truths of your word. Father, those principles that we live by would be biblical principles. And as a result, we would do what you have called us to do. I ask, Father, that uh, your spirit would continue to challenge us and to work within us for your glory and honor. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, you can find us online at facebook.com slash TBC Swan River. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Temple Baptist Church or anywhere you subscribe to your podcasts. Mm-hmm.